Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, indeed. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 177. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell. Had a couple of fine conversations coming up for you this afternoon. A little bit later on, we welcome in the legendary Steve Van Zant, Little Steven, Miami Steve, to talk about his brand new memoir autobiography, Unrequited Infatuations. We'll talk about uh, working with Bruce Springsteen, James Gandolfini on The Sopranos, and much, much more straight ahead. But up first, he's always a favorite when he visits our show and the podcast. Actor, author, storyteller Stephen Tobolowski checked in with us recently to talk about returning to work in these COVID times and much more. Here's Stephen Tobolowski on Downtown. Hello there, Stephen. Hey, Rich. Good to be in Maine again. Great to have you with us. Now, before we came on the air live, I was admiring your your Zoom background, which is among the best I've seen here. One of the best. Uh it, it, it not only is I'm one of the first people at bookcases, but I realize as you get older and older and older, you you amass all of this crap. I don't know. Can I say that on the radio? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, 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 it's like I have all this like I could show you this thing here, which is pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> can you see this here? Yes. Do you know what this is? Something in a Ziploc bag. Is it a legal substance? <laughs> no, no. Let me pull this out. Can you see this? Oh, what is that? It really works on radio when yes. it just have those long pauses. So this is a piece of the Berlin Wall. Wow. Now, wow. Uh, when I was 19, I was an exchange student in Berlin. Uh, over the sum, not in Berlin, in Germany as a whole. And our tour was going through Berlin. There they had the wall and they had the east and west uh, Berlin. And so this little busload of American students is crossing at Checkpoint Charlie from west to east. The guy next to me was also from Texas. I was 19. He was 16. His name was Mark. And the East German police get on the bus with the machine guns. And Mark, who was a Texas guy, said, get that blanken machine gun out of my face, you blanken commie. <laughs> well, apparently, the blanken commie understood enough English to understand <laughs> that Mark was dissing him. And for some reason, he picked me to come off the bus, too. So he oh. pulled both of us off the bus, put us up against <laughs> Checkpoint Charlie, the wall at Checkpoint Charlie, wow. had our, bug, our luggage taken off of the bus, opened up, and they searched our luggage, and then we were told to stand against the wall. The head of our tour bus said that we were there, uh, that they had to pay something like five or 600 marks per person in ransom to get us off of the wall. Nobody had the wow. money, so they had to go to the American embassy. Me and Mark stood against the wall. Then it began a thunderstorm. The German guards go inside the little their little <laughs> hut at Checkpoint Charlie, get a little vodka and look out at us in the pouring rain with our hands on our heads up against the wall, our luggage getting drenched and them like waving at us like, like, hello, how are you? Oh. And, and then, <laughs> and after a couple of hours, God love them. 
the bus came back and they paid our ransom and we got off of the wall. And this little bit of wall is a, is a bit of a souvenir of that. Now, I look back at Checkpoint Charlie and it does not look the same. If you were to go back to check, if you were to look at Checkpoint Charlie today, it's completely different. Then I'm watching the Academy movies a couple years ago. They send us the Academy movies and there was Tom Hanks in Bridge of Spies. Oh, right, right. And I'm watching the movie and they're going through Checkpoint Charlie and I say to my wife, Anna, I go, no, that's it. That's where I was. Steven Spielberg and the art of film recreated the Checkpoint Charlie that I was held up against the wall with the machine gun. There was the red wall. There was the guard tower. Everything was exactly as it was. And I'm screaming, pointing at the screen saying, Annie, that's it. That's it. This is where this eventually came from. And so this gets a spot on my wall of crap of things that I have (laughs) lived through and survived. Wow. And it's up there. It's up there on the wall. But this is what art does for you. Art, in a way, can recreate, can give us inspiration, can bring back ghosts from the past. It is the most amazing thing in the world. That's a story for the podcast down the road. That's wonderful. It's nuts. It's a crazy thing that happened. It's a crazy thing that happened. Now, what what year was that? Do you remember? Because I spent a big chunk of the summer in Germany, but it was been 1969. I think we were there very close. I think my summer, I'm guessing right now, I'm thinking was 70. Okay. It was, but I think it was 69 or 70 was when I was there. So apparently I did nothing to loosen the people there up for you. <laughs> no, not at all. You didn't help one bit. No, not story of bit. my life, Stephen. Story you know of that. Your life. <laughs> well, let's talk about what you're doing. Uh, you're, you're headed back uh, to, is it the Sony lot to shoot more episodes of the Goldbergs? Yeah, Sony Lot Goldbergs, uh, which, of course, I'm always excited to do. And it's always a challenge now in COVID times. Uh, I've been signed for five more Goldberg shows, and the more the merrier because it's just the people are great writers, great directors, and a great cast. You you can't beat it. And also, the crew is great. A lot of people say, well, what divides shows, you know, whether they're successful? The crew. You know, the people who work on the Goldbergs are so magnificent. So in COVID times, when you go there, I have to get a COVID test every day to go onto the set. I have to show proof of vaccination. Then they do my makeup and hair either outdoors or alone. And they're all wearing a spacesuit, <laughs> you, you know, so they don't get content. And then after that, I am put in a plexiglass box. They put me in a plexiglass box that has about six of these boxes. And so the cast members that are going to be in the scene are placed in these boxes where you're sealed. You are herme- <laughs> you are like a salmon or something. You are sealed <laughs> until you're ready to go out and rehearse. And then you rehearse with a mask and a face shield. Then they redo your makeup and you only go out there with the camera blocking with the face shield. And then you have to take everything off to Mm. shoot. And you are so scared. You're like, oh, my God. And I've gotten the question a few times, like, what is it that makes a professional actor? You know, the love of the craft or whatever. What is the skill you have to have? So Wendy and I were on the set doing uh, a Goldberg's. And they ran on and said, there's been a COVID break on the set. 
everybody go outside. Go, so we're halfway through this. Go outside. We'll tell you what's going on. So Wendy and I, we, we go outside. We're all waiting at, at the Sony lot in the road. And they said, OK, everybody go home and we will call you tonight individually and tell you what the situation is. And I'm scared to death. Mm. And so I go home that night and then they let me know that one of the uh, stand-ins uh, who was not on the set at the same time, Wendy and I well, were on the set. One of the stand-ins came up with one of his positive COVID tests that day. So we all went home. They're de decontaminating the entire stage. And now Wendy and I are called back 6.30 the next morning, That the next morning to finish the scene, the comic scene we're doing. So I was telling people that is what a professional <laughs> actor is. You do half of a comedy scene at 6 o'clock at night. You're told that you may have come down with COVID. Get the hell out of here. And then you're back at six the next morning to finish a comedy scene. That's what you have to do to be an actor. That's uh, I don't think they taught you that in college, did they? They don't, <laughs> they don't do that. They don't do that in school. They teach you Shakespeare and other stuff that you don't need anymore. Oh, gosh, so sad. Uh, but you're doing the state of California seems to be doing a little bit better in recent days. It, yeah, we, we, we hope it, it's just up. Uh, I just this is the this is the sign of the future, I think, or hopefully a sign of the past, Rich. I just did a Grace and Frankie uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, nice. uh, and my, my scenes were with Lily Tomlin and Sam Waterston. Mm. You know, how can Jane Fonda was on vacation then, but but she had already finished. But I love those people so much. There you have the daily COVID test, but then they give you something like a credit card. It's a computer. It's about as big as a, well, like a black American Express credit card. You probably have one of those, Rich. When you, <laughs> you know, you know it, it's, it's a little thicker than a credit card, but it goes in your pocket. And they said, and the COVID governor says, turn it on. So you turn it on, you put it in your pocket, and it's a contact tracer. So what happens is everybody on the lot, and we did it, this at the Sunset Gower lot, everyone on the lot has these little computers in your pocket. And if you come within six feet of someone who has in their daily COVID test turned up positive, you, the people in charge know you have been in contact. And then you are, you said, okay, you've been in contact with someone who's had COVID. And now, so they are tracking you all the time everywhere. So in terms of things getting better, I know the technology is mm. getting more invasive and it scares you, but it's it's there at least. You feel like somebody is protecting you. But like the old Jewish saying, if not now, when? You know, yeah. you got to go back to work at some point. So now's the time to do it. Well, that that seems to me, I like that technology as opposed to how I spend my days, which is telling high school freshmen, could you please pull that up over your nose and... <laughs> Well, I have a big nose. It doesn't work. I just got, I had a girl the other day. I just got my nose pierced and it keeps slipping and it irritates my nose. I said, well, what if you put the ring right through the mask and that will attach it to your nose? She, she didn't like that idea. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. You know, it, it's just amazing. It's amazing that we're we're going through this period of time and it is really just like the old days with the computer when it didn't work anymore. You unplug it from the wall, <laughs> then you plug it back in again. 
that's what this has been. It's been an unplug, plug in, and now what's left mm. at the end of the day. And and I think for me, of course, I'm older now. I I, I realize I'm I'm uh, going over the cliff. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm one of, you know, they said, we're only going to deal with people over 65 with the third shot. I'm going, hell, I'm 70, you know, I'm 70 now. And, and I'm like, oh my gosh. But, you know, you realize now I don't want this to sound as grim as it's going to sound, but before you unplug the computer, what I realized my life was all about is that my legacy is, is I want to live well. I want to sure. live well, but I realize that the true legacy of happiness is to make sure you die well. And, and I don't mean this in a grim way. I mean it in a way that you, you keep your regrets to a minimum. You keep your false dealings with people to zero, hopefully. <laughs> You, you come up square with people. You help your children. You help your grandchildren. You, you you get them on the road the right way, and then you're you're in a perfect. Then you realize, oh, I'm really happy now. I don't need the Ferrari, the 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 far the far. Now, I'll just do this as a sidebar, as an addendum. You know, when I was a kid, when I was in high school, everybody says, oh. Man, you can't wait till you drive. Oh, yeah, those Dodges, they're great cars. Oh, get a Camaro. That's great. Oh, I can't wait till I drive. Oh, I can't wait till I have a car. Well, I've had a car my whole damn life. It's miserable. I hate having to drive. I hate having a car. And nobody in my life ever said, you're going to want to be a grandparent, man. You're going to want to stick around and be a grandparent because that is the greatest thing in the world. And the one thing I want to give out to your audience, if you're not there yet, you want to be around to be a grandparent. That is such joy that I never expected, never anticipated. I was waiting for the Camaro, never got the Camaro, <laughs> but I did get the grandchild. That's not a bad deal indeed. We're talking with Stephen Tobolowsky here on Downtown. Uh, I know Carrie wanted to ask you, we're talking about some of the things you're working on, and Carrie wanted to ask you about uh, your work in one of his favorites. I'm going to turn the camera so you can <laughs> yeah. see him. There yeah, he is. I, I've been a watcher of Archer since like it started, <laughs> and I think we're on the 12th season now. So when I tuned in for this 12th season and uh, happened to see you pop up, I was very happy. It's It, it sounds like you're having a blast on the show, and yeah, uh, your it, part has been great. Archer is a terrific show. It's absolutely hilarious. The scripts are wonderful. Of course, even in COVID times, nobody is with me at all in the studio. Mm. If anything, in the beginning of the pandemic, we would do things uh, like we're doing now. Right. You, you know, I'm in this studio, you're in that studio. But the whole Archer thing came about was I was in Finland. I was in Finland and I had to come back to Austin, Texas, for a one day at a time producers kind of showcase uh, for new shows that were coming out this year. And they were all meeting in Austin, Texas. So I fly from Helsinki to Austin and there is a flight that goes from Helsinki to Austin. And you watch a lot of movies on that flight because it's not that big of a plane. I get to Austin and I'm headed for the hotel and crossing the street this man came up to me and said, oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm Matt Thompson. I'm 
one of the executive producers of Archer, would you like to be on the show, Archer? I, we, we were thinking about having a part that's based on you for Archer. And I'm crossing the street and I'm going, well, hell yes. <laughs> I, I, I would love to be on Archer. That would be absolutely great. He says, that's great. But could you do a favor for me? And I said, sure. He says, well, I'm trying to get uh, one of my projects to some of the people involved with One Day at a Time. And just at that time, Mike Royce, our executive producer at One Day at a Time, is crossing the street in Austin, Texas. <laughs> and I go, Matt, here he is. Here's Mike Royce from One Day at a Time. You guys talk. And yes, I'll do Archer. Oh, and wow. that's how it happens in show business. I, I have it's to... all about leaving Helsinki at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you about this. Of all the times you've been on, Stephen, I don't think I've ever asked you about one of my favorite movies, which I, I happened to catch on cable a couple of weeks ago. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience of making sneakers? Oh, God. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, I was insulted when I got the script of sneakers. I was insulted because I figured, like, why are they giving me this this junk, this this movie called Sneakers? You know, I thought it was like some dopey kid movie, you know, <laughs> uh, that would be on Kid Disney Hour or something. So I read the script, and I'm absolutely blown out of the water as to how brilliant the script is. I go in and meet Phil Alden Robinson, the, the director, and I go, this script is amazing. I, I, I read this. I did it. And what Phil told me was in that movie, he says, well, uh, Mary, Mary McDonald, who, who I, who I do most of my scenes with, right. Uh, he says, you know, she's a bit uptight, you know? So if you want to do anything to kind of upset her in any way at all, please do that. <laughs> and so throughout all of our shooting, I just threw in the kitchen sink in any of those scenes, whether it was putting in my contacts at the table or showing her, you know, chopping up the vegetable, saying the healthiest meal is the bottom of a monkey cage. <laughs> None of that was in a script. You know, <laughs> you want to see the bottom of a monkey cage, you know, and now I'm going to pound these breasts. You want to help me pound the breasts, you know, for, you know, anything I could to make her laugh. I ended up at the first reading, I'm going back, the first reading, I'm sitting there next to Sidney Poitier, Robert Redford, <laughs> River Phoenix, uh, uh, David Strathairn. I'm looking around, I'm going like, oh my God, James Earl Jones. This is like, this is the greatest cast ever assembled. And one of the funniest moments I had on shooting, uh, first of all, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And later when I did... Uh, Broadway, I did Mornings at Seven. Phil came uh, with Carol King. Phil Alden Robinson came with Carol King and they came backstage. They saw the play and they came back to say hello and they both loved it. Anyway, the funniest moment I had, besides Ben Kingsley, Ben Kingsley, the funniest man on earth. Really? You would not believe he <laughs> is, but this guy is filled with the funniest stories in the world. Just Put that, just imagine next time you see him, he is filled with the funniest stories of him doing Shakespeare and stuff in the, in the provinces. But we are on the Universal lot and we're shooting some of Sneakers. And you know, they have these trams going around with, with, with uh, 
tourists. Right. And and they have this jibe that they do. And over here is the shark from Jaws. That's Bruce, the shark from Jaws. If you look over here, there's the car from Columbus. Oh, my goodness. And there's E.T.'s bicycle. And everybody's taking pictures of everything. Well, Robert Redford and James Earl Jones's trailer were across the road. And so we're all called to the set to do a scene. So I come down and I see James Earl Jones, who I had worked with before in Thailand, and I'm waving at him. And he and Robert Redford are coming, and the van is coming in between us. And the guy is doing his patter, and over here is the Bruce the shark from Jaws, and they have to stop for James Earl Jones and Robert Redford to walk in front of the tramp. <laughs> but the guy keeps doing his patter. And he goes, oh, my goodness, and there's the bicycle from E.T. And all the people are on the bus <laughs> taking pictures. This is before the age of the little phones. They're taking their snapshots of all these stupid sites when two of the biggest <laughs> stars in the world are walking in front of the trolley. It was the funniest thing I ever saw. And it was just – but it was – that was a great shoot from beginning to end. We loved it all. And – I remember I said to my agents when I was working on it, I go like, now I know what $100 million feels like. <laughs> That's what, And that was back in the time when $100 million meant something right, in movies. Right. Magnificent film. Great, great, great film. One of those that every time it comes on, I'm, I'm two hours right there. I will not turn away because I love that movie. It's, it's magnificent. It's magnificent. And you know there is a book on how to write screenplays. There's a book on how to write screenplays, and Sneakers violates the primary rules of writing screenplays. And and I, I said to Phil, and, and of course, you know, I know, everyone who's seen it, it is one of the greatest screenplays ever. Mm. And, and I said, Phil, you wrote the screenplay of Sneakers. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, how is it so great? And why were you able to violate the primary rule of screenplays? And and he said, because, Stephen, it took me nine years to write it. And we shot three versions of it. We shot the we, – we, we, we did the version of the screenplay with just what you need to have to follow the plot. And then we had the version of the screenplay where everything's in it that we wanted. And then we had the version of the screenplay where just we're going to do both. And that's what we ended up filming. Wow. And we knew everything would work because we – and the primary rule of screenplays is you can't change the rules in the middle of the script. <laughs> and damn it, they do. <laughs> they really do. Big time. I love it. So if you haven't seen it, see it. It's Absolutely. very enjoyable. But before we let you go, you look great. It looks like you, again, are one of the few people to lose weight – during COVID, is it still because you're you're living off what uh, Anne is growing in the garden? Well, that and dark gin. I, I start <laughs> drinking gin. <laughs> no, Anne is, well, I think what it is, is the true answer to your question is probably yes, in that we don't go to restaurants or anything, so I'm yeah. not eating the basket of bread before I eat. <laughs> Everything we do, Anne makes bread here. She makes cinnamon rolls here. She's cooking dinner right now. And... I just eat better and I eat less, and I do drink that gin starting about four o'clock this afternoon. That was, and the dark gin from Finland—it really is magnificent. It just takes the weight <laughs> right off. 
<laughs> All right. We may have to shift that, uh, make that our new studio drink instead of the wine we have <laughs> when you're here. Wine. Right, right. <laughs> well, Stephen, it is wonderful to catch up with you. Uh, it's a busy time for you. So thanks so much for making time for us uh, this afternoon. And we wish you well. Stay safe out there. Thank you, sir. And the same to you. That's Stephen Tobolowsky. Always with great stories. <laughs> the, the Berlin Wall story. Wow. He may, never ceases to amaze me anytime we talk with him. It, it, he feels like no matter what the topic you could throw at him, Stephen would have a interesting story mm. to tell on that topic. Yeah. He, he just has, uh, has such a great way of, of telling these adventures that he has had in his life. And in case you wondered about getting that Camaro, Carrie, you can hold off. Wait to become a grandparent. That's better than a Camaro. <laughs> Just saying. Well, it's, it's, it, it makes me feel good that I haven't gotten a Camaro yet. <laughs> there you go. We'll take a break. A quick word from Cross Insurance. When we come back, Steve Van Zant on his new memoir. That's next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. Let's give a listen to a little bit of our next guest. On downtown, uh, too many hyphens to use them all here. Singer, songwriter, musician, producer, radio show host, actor. Uh, you name it, he's done it through the years, and he chronicles all of it in a brand-new memoir called Unrequited Infatuations. Little Steven himself, Steve Van Zandt, joins us here on downtown. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, good to be with you, Richie. Man, I'll tell you what, I started reading the book last night. I couldn't put it down. I read the whole thing. What a what a terrific read. And I, I wonder if in writing that book you followed your own advice that you talk about in there that you just dive in and learn on the job. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of been the pattern of my life. You read the whole book in one night? I did. It was fantastic. Wow, man, that's a, that's the first. I've never heard anybody say that. That's amazing. Uh, but yeah, you know, these kind of things the same way with, you know, producing, you know, whether you're, whatever you're producing, you know, producing records or TV or whatever it is, you jump in and just do it, man. You know, and, uh, the thing, you know, writing a book, you know, turned out to be, you know, trickier than, than you'd expect because there's a lot, you know, you start, you start to relive your life again and you realize you did, you did more than you remember, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just hard, hard kind of fitting it all in, but, um, uh, I had a terrific editor with Ben Greenman, and uh, and he really helped out a lot. So, you know, I think I think it, it, it tells a pretty you know pretty coherent story, 
uh, even though the, my life goes all over the place, you know, you start to see why, why it did, which was, you know, it helped, it helped me. It, it helped explain my life to me, you know, which was, which was nice. Well, there's a, there's a theme throughout it, though, and that's the passion for everything you do. And it's, uh, in a way, that passion that brought you and Bruce Springsteen together. As, as you say, you were the only, uh, the only two freaks who thought rock and roll was everything. Yeah, that's, that's true. We, we bonded on that very early. You know, there was only about a dozen bands in our area because the, the whole band thing was a new thing back then. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Beatles uh, appearing on TV started an entire cultural revolution all, all by themselves. And, and then, of course, that was followed by the entire what we call the British Invasion, uh, which was all bands, you know. And we had never seen any. I mean, if you went to your high school dance, it was an instrumental dance. You know, um, and, and, you know, we had doo-wop singing groups. We had individuals like Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and, you know, but, but there was not a lot of bands. And so suddenly everybody had a band and, um, and about a dozen of us got out of the garage <laughs> and the rest mercifully stayed there. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I had a band called the Stories and he had a band called the Castiles and, and we, uh, we ran, you know, we, we just started running into each other and, uh, and realize that, you know, we were two of the few, you know, we were the only two people that we knew where, where yeah, rock and roll was literally everything. It wasn't, it wasn't some hobby you're going to do on the weekend. It wasn't something, you know, casual. We weren't casual about it. And that was a freaky thing to, to, to embrace because uh, it wasn't really a business until the 70s, you know. So, so, you know, our parents were just completely freaking out. You, you know, they, being in a rock and roll band was, was you know, second only to being a criminal, except being a criminal paid better. You know? <laughs> We're talking to Steve Van Zandt here on Downtown. A turning point in the book and a turning point in your life is is quitting the E Street Band in 1984. And you, you talk about what a costly decision that was for you in many ways. But at the same time, it opened up a lot of new doors, including the activism that has continued to be such a big part of your life. Yeah, my whole life changed and one one life literally ended at that point, you know. And I talk about it, you know. Uh, and you and you're then reborn. You know, you have to die before you're reborn, and and that's what happened at that point. So the first half of the book is is very very linear. Um, you know, talking about you know from New Jersey that grows up and becomes very successful in in, in rock and roll. But then but then the second half of the book is really when. Uh, Things start getting more, you know, more interesting in, in a way. Uh, when I leave the band, and now I have to find an entirely new purpose in life, and a new identity, and then start searching for, you know, the big questions in life, like why are we here, and what, you know, what, what, you know, what, what can we, what can we contribute while we're here, and uh, and that's when that's when the political stuff starts to happen in that second half of the book. So. It becomes, it's almost like two separate books in a way. But, um, you know, we explain it as we go, and, and, and it, was, it was helpful to me to, to, to go back and realize why I did certain things and the justification for those crazy moves that I had that I did back then. And, um, you know, it's not, it was nice to relive it. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's cathartic. You know, it, it helps you feel better about your life. It's really powerful. I found it powerful. You talking about the fact that suicide became a constant companion for you and that it was also empowering to lose your fear of death. 
yeah, it was an interesting uh, dynamic that takes place when you, when you know, you realize you you've blown your life. You know, everything you've worked towards your entire life is now you you just blew it with one decision. Um, you know, it can go it can go one of two ways, man. You know, you can you know. <laughs> You can jump off the building, <laughs> you know. You can jump off the bridge, uh, or you kind of like become really focused on on saying to yourself, "Well, since I'm here, and since I no longer have that, you know, that that music sort of, you know, showbiz life, uh, exactly, uh, I'm going to make it count. I, I got to do something that really counts, you know. And, and, and so it helps you focus, and you become fearless. Uh, you know, because you're going into places that are dangerous and you don't care, you know, because you're completely focused on on the work. So it was kind of, it was an interesting thing that I think, you know, many people may go through in life, you know, where, where one part of your life ends and another one begins. And instead of seeing it as an ending, you know, you, you got to see it as a new beginning. And, and, and sometimes that's not really clear. When, when the event happens, when it takes place, you got to give it a minute, you know. You got to have enough faith in yourself uh, that you're going you're gonna to figure out a way to justify your existence. You know? As somebody who still thinks The Sopranos is the greatest television show of all time, I, I loved reading about that, but it was fascinating to learn that uh, there were a lot of times when you were talking James Gandolfini down off the ledge uh, for a guy who'd been a character actor to make this move into being the lead in a show. It was stressful, but uh, you were you were his consigliere off-screen as well. Well, we, we bonded. Uh, I think we bonded very quickly because I think we're, we're both kind of character actors. You know, you know he, he was more naturally that, and I was more naturally a side man. You know, neither one of us, I think... Uh, you know, uh, had that had that uh, front man, you know, inclination, you know, to to be a leading a leading man or a front man. Uh, you know, I think both of us were kind of more comfortable being part of, you know, part of an ensemble, part of a band. You know, uh, and and I think we bonded we bonded on that. I I think you know because he had a wonderful attitude. You know, that was the opposite of being a diva. You know. Uh, uh, when we were working, and uh, and he set the tone, I think, on on on, on the set. You know, got a little concerned. You know, are the are the other actors going to accept me as an actor or not? You know, I had said to David Chase, I said, listen, I feel guilty taking an actor's job. Uh, you know, because I'm not an actor. I, my, my wife's a real actor, Maureen. You know, I've seen her. I've seen her go to go to acting school for years and all of that, and she ended up playing my wife, of course. But but I said you know but for me I mean I'm I, I don't I feel guilty taking an actor's job. He said okay well then I'm then I'm going to write you in a part that doesn't exist, you know, and and so um, he wrote guys. me in a part you know and, and and you know and I think you know in the end uh, everybody had a terrific attitude. They were very helpful to me and turned out to be just the greatest acting school in the world. Yeah. Unrequited Infatuations, the new book. Uh, Stephen, loved it. Love your work through the years. I uh, hope we can get together again and talk for even longer. Thanks so much for being with us today, Steve. Uh, well, my pleasure. So glad you liked the book. What a very interesting guy, Steve Van Zant, talking about the new memoir, which is great. Unrequited Infatuations. Our thanks to him and thanks to Big Steve and Stephen Tobolowski for joining us as well this week on the podcast. And thanks to you 
Hope you'll be kind enough to leave a big old five-star review. If you're not subscribed, do so. Tell your friends. Bribe them if you must. We'll take care of you on the back end here. We'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.